Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today. Along with my partner, orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, we also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today's guest is David Sinclair, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Paul Glenn Center for Biological Mechanisms of Aging. He's widely considered one of the world's foremost experts on longevity research. A co-founder of the journal Aging and several biotech companies, he also holds 35 patents. David is a recipient of more than 25 awards and honors, including being knighted in the Order of Australia. His work is featured in five books, two documentary movies, 60 Minutes, Morgan Freeman's Through the Wormhole, and other media. His newest book that we're going to discuss today is Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. It was released in September 2019 by Simon & Schuster. David, welcome to the show. This is a real treat to have you on today. Oh, Colin, it's great to be on. Thanks. I thought, you know, because of our audience here, ICD-10, 11, these are not unfamiliar terms to them. Last year, there was a new code issued. For anyone who doesn't know about this, this is the International Classification of Diseases, and this is used for classification of diseases, but also for coding and billing in the U.S. especially. And David, there's one new one that came out last year, MG2A. Tell us why this one's a little different and why it's pretty significant for what we have to talk about today. Right. Well, so the ICD-11 book of uh, disease codes of the World Health Organization it's been growing in list uh, the list has been growing since uh, last well hundred years started with a few hundred now it's 14,000 diseases but this there's a new one that is particularly interesting to me and hopefully to all of you and that code MG uh, what was it 211 is uh, 2A, yeah 2a is uh, and actually the Lancet wrote about this and I was surprised they even noticed because I think somebody snuck it in when no one was looking. (laughs) This disease or this condition is called old age. Uh, Without senile dementia, I think that's the the subtext. But nevertheless, this is essentially WHO uh, declaring that we should be considering old age itself as a condition. Now, I think everyone will realize that 200 years ago, old age used to be an acceptable cause of death. Uh, and then we we discovered causes of diseases and named every one. But I argue in my book that um, it's not just important to know why we fall off a cliff, but how we got to the cliff in the first place. Well, let's talk about that. You started at the beginning. I think it's a good place for us to start as well. We could spend hours talking about this, but give us an idea of, let's go back to the primordial soup that we all came from. Um, what what were the conditions these early proteins and these early cells were under that really led to this A and B pathway that we're going to talk about? Give us kind of a 30,000 foot overview there. Uh, Right. Well, the background is that uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist. So anybody who uh, doesn't subscribe to evolution is not going to like what I'm going to say. And in fact, one reviewer on, on uh, the web didn't like the book uh, as much as she could have because she thought that evolution was disproven and boring. Uh, but hopefully you'll listen. <laughs> At least you read it, I guess, presumably. That's true. That's fine. I'm, I'm pleased. But yeah, so what I am proposing in my book is a, a new way to think about not just what aging is and what we should define it as, but why it evolved in the first place and why it occurs at the molecular level. And I'm proposing that uh, aging evolved initially in early life as a defense response against adversity uh, in a way to connect growth and reproduction with survival. 
And uh, essentially, there's a couple of genes that are very important, a survival gene and a repair gene. We have this survival network of proteins that control other genes that have allowed not just us, but all life on Earth to thrive over the last four billion years. But I also propose that this survival circuit, the way it's set up, is also our Achilles heel and that it is the reason we age. So this has a lot to do with uh, top-level DNA repair, repairing damage that comes from just living and existing on Earth. And give us an idea, one, what stops this this repair mechanism from happening right now as we know it, you know, as in September 2019 here. I mean, things are moving very fast in this field. And why isn't it operating all the time? Well, evolution doesn't really care about anything but the passage of genes. So as long as our genes get to pass on, we don't have to. And that's the way it works. And natural selection uh, only builds a body that allows you to pass on your offspring uh, and maybe a little bit more. And so most of our our existence as humans, we only needed to get through our 40s. Uh, and then that was enough to procreate. And it wasn't worth building a body that survived 200 years, um, except if you're a whale and top of the food chain, because we would- so We want to talk about that, by the way. Die. Right. And so it, evolution doesn't really care. And as long as near enough is good enough, that's fine. And so these systems have been set up to get us through to our 40s, but not much longer than that. And so that's why even though we are very actively pursuing individual diseases and cures for those diseases, uh, we're not making a massive amount of headway in terms of extending our average lifespans because we're not addressing the root cause of most of those problems, which is the, the, the loss of our youth, the aging process, which I think we can talk a little bit about why that happens. Um, and then that means that these diseases will occur in an exponential fashion. Just one fact that I think is worth bringing up here is that we know that smoking is bad. That'll increase your chance of lung cancer by fivefold. My mother died of lung cancer, so I'm the first to say that research into cancer is important. But if we were to cure cancer, every type of cancer today, on average, we would only live another two and a half years. And the reason is that all of these other diseases that kill us are going up in chance exponentially. So we're going to be knocked over no matter what we do, unless we push those all out together at the same time. And I think we have a chance of doing that. So that really brings us to the most basic of questions here. Why do we age? And not as a philosophical question, but based off of evolution, we seem to only be needed for about 40 years, right? That's, that's worked for most of human history, but not every organism operates this way. There are sharks that they found harpoons in from the 1800s. I mean, there's, there's trees on, that have been on the earth for 5,000 years or more. So not exactly. every organism has evolved this way. Why, why do humans age? Well, just I'll get to the molecular in a second, but the reason that, that we don't live forever is that it all depends on the amount of disease and predation that we had. And, you know, a mouse that doesn't help a mouse to live 200 years because it's not going to survive more than a few. Same with us. We are walking on the Serengeti and getting eaten by uh, tigers and all sorts of things, starvation. But whales, uh, plenty of food, no predators. It makes sense for them to be able to live 200 years and breed very slowly as a, as a, as a trade-off. But molecularly, what I'm proposing in my book, and I've 
have evidence from my lab, some work that's published, some that's about to be published, is that it's aging, put simply, is a loss of information. Okay, there are two types of main stores of information in the body. One is digital. That's our DNA, the code for our genes in letters ACTG rather than ones and zeros, but it's digital. But the other type of information that's just as important, in fact, 80% uh, dictates our longevity, is the epigenome, the structures in the cell that turn on and off the genes. And the epigenome is essential for building a baby that's comprised of 26 billion cells. It's also essential for making sure that tissues stay uh, functional. A, a neuron needs to remember that it's a neuron for up to 80, 90 years. And the epigenome is what makes that possible, even though it has the same genome as a liver cell and a skin cell. And what I'm proposing is it's the loss of the epigenome, which is the analog type of data. And anyone of uh, uh, any of one of us, and I think most of us have had a record player or a cassette tape, we know how bad analog devices are at storing and copying information. And one analogy you use is a computer. So my MacBook in front of me here is akin to the genome. The epigenome would be the software that's running on it. It'd be Skype, exactly. the, the recording software, all the things that are happening in the background that we don't even appreciate. And another analogy that I use in the book is a DVD, that the genome is the, the pits in the DVD, the music, the concerto of our lives. But aging is essentially the scratches that accumulate and prevent the player from reading the right music at the right time. And what we've been looking for are two things. What are the things that drive those scratches to cause aging? And how do we polish the DVD to get back our youth? And I, we've made breakthroughs in both these areas. So in the normal cellular mitosis of life, there's not perfect copies made, right? There's, there's certain errors in this. We all know this because uh, that's where mutations and change come from. We're at the same as, you know, Neanderthals. But um, what, what, uh, scratches, what do these scratches really mean for us during our lifespan? And how does that affect aging? Yeah. Uh, well, the, our audience today is, um, is educated, so I'm going to go in a little bit of detail here more than I normally would. Now, the scratches are um, representations. It's an, it's an analogy for uh, chromatin, which are the structures of protein and DNA, um, that form larger structures. So our, our cells aren't just filled with flailing DNA uh, molecules, they're actually looped very carefully, controlled by other proteins. And you can think of the structures that silence genes as looping up a, a garden hose into a, a, a loop there. And if you want a gene to stay off for an entire lifespan, it could be a liver-specific gene in the brain, switch it off, you loop it up, and you bind it up. Conversely, if you want to keep a neuron a neuron, you want to turn on those genes and you loop them out in what are called TADs or topologically associated domains of DNA. And what I'm proposing in the book is that, first of all, that these structures uh, are very important to maintain our body's youthfulness and that stresses to the cell, and one of the main stresses that we've uncovered that's important is a broken chromosome. They unravel, or the cell has to unravel many of these structures to repair the chromosome, and that we think that one of the reasons the clock ticks forward is that those structures don't get fully put back together. So in other words, the loop of those, the hose reel doesn't get put back fully. And over a lifetime of about a trillion breaks in the body per day, 
you get an accumulation of what we are calling epigenomic or epigenetic noise uh, and drift and cells eventually lose their identity because that nerve cell that once had a pristine set of information in the epigenome and knew that it was a neuron is starting to drift away from being a neuron and taking on other attributes. Maybe it's half a skin cell and half it's a neuron, and that's not great for the functioning of the brain. But the question is, can you find a youthful epigenome in a cell? Is there a backup copy of that original information? And there may be, and that's something we're going to get to, which is unbelievably fascinating. Let me see if I can hang with this analogy a little bit longer. So the garden hose is sitting outside. It's being used all the time. It's getting damaged by UV rays. It starts to crack. Um, you haven't taken it inside to fix it. And had you taken it inside to fix it, you could have made it last longer, keep it as its original state, but um, it needs to be used. So we almost need to take a break from use or in some cases put more stress on the body and the cells. Tell us about what happens when the repairs take place and why they're not taking place continuously throughout the day and night. Well, I, I love that analogy. It, it's really... A, Aging is a consequence of the repair. It's the best I can do as a history major, David, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Liberal arts guy. <laughs> well, it's pretty it's – I'm going to use it as long as you don't trademark it. It's a, it's a great analogy because it, what, it, what it shows is that you need to fix things, but in the process of fixing things, you're screwing up things. And, and in the cell, what's going on is that when you have a broken chromosome, and that can happen from an X-ray, uh, UV light will accelerate that. A CT scan will damage DNA, but it's also part of the natural process of just cells existing and replicating. You cannot avoid DNA breaks. Even if you live at the bottom of the ocean in a lead-lined suitcase, you'll still have breaks. So it's not unavoidable, but we do think that there are structures and repair proteins that can slow it down, part of this survival circuit that I was describing earlier on. And we've been studying a certain set of proteins called sirtuins. There are seven of these enzymes in the body called SIRT1 through SIRT7. And they have two main functions. And we, we think they've had the same function since uh, yeast cells and, and early bacteria. And that is to regulate the genes. They are the, the, the enzymes that help spool the hose reel back together. They're called silencing proteins. That's what the S stands for in SIRT1. And the IR stands for information regulator. Again, information being important here. And, but sirtuins have another function. They've evolved to repair broken chromosomes. And the cell doesn't have enough sirtuin enzymes to go around. Um, and I explain why. It's mainly because it's part of the coordination survival circuit. But what happens when you cut the DNA, and we've done that in a mouse, what we see is that the sirtuins move away from the, the hose reel and they go repair the DNA. The hose reel unravels. Those genes come on in part to help the cell survive. But then the sirtuins have to find their way back again to where they were, and they don't often make their way back. In the same way, if you call uh, the Army Corps of Engineers down to Hurricane Katrina, and a few of them lost their way or got married while they were down there, we think the same thing's going on in the cell, which leads to the dysregulation of the genome, and eventually the cells will do what we call senesce and check out of the cell cycle and just sit there like zombies. So a couple things here. Um... The power workers and uh, rescuers, everybody who's heading down to Louisiana, they have to be called in first. So they have to know there's a problem. And that's a stress. That's uh, lack of food. That's uh, 
any number of things, uh, exercise perhaps, but also we probably need to order in more than we think is necessary because some of them aren't going to make their flights. Some of them are going to get car accidents on the way down. So there's a couple pathways to improving this process. One through supplementation, perhaps, you know, we've done this in, or you've done this in mouse models, but also just by a change of behavior right now, for example, fasting, right? That, that may, well, let's take a step back, right? So when times are good, we're looking at reproducing. That's our, that's our evolved uh, job here on earth. But when times aren't, times aren't good during famine, we don't have enough food, not enough sleep, then we kind of pull back a little bit and these sirtuins are, are sent out. Am I on the right track here? Yeah, it is. So sirtuins, we, we want more of, more of them. And when we put in more copies of the sirtuins, uh, and by we, I mean my colleagues um, around the world and I, uh, you can extend the lifespan of, of mice. So a SIRT6 transgenic mouse with more of the number six sirtuin, it will live longer, it will repair DNA better, and its epigenome will be more stable. And by the way, it will also prevent uh, retrotranspose on these ancient viruses in the genome from jumping out and causing havoc as well. Uh, but yes, more sirtuin activity is good. And we've found a couple of ways to activate the sirtuin enzymes over the years. One uh, was uh, headed by resveratrol. We found uh, this molecule in red wine was one of a class of plant molecules that could activate the sirtuin enzyme. And another way to activate them is to make sure that the levels of the chemical NAD don't decline. Uh, NAD, you'll remember from high school, if not uh, since, is a chemical that we need for chemical reactions in the body. It's a very small molecule. Uh, but what we found is it goes up and down during the day and it responds to how much we eat. And the more exercise we do and the less we eat, the more NAD is produced in the body. And that activates our sirtuin survival program. Yeah, we're going to get to that uh, as well here. So um, let's just uh, take a sidetrack for a moment. Some of these long-lived organisms on Earth, um, I, I get what you're saying. You know, an, a whale is living in probably a pretty static environment. Maybe the temperature of the ocean has changed over time. But for the most part, the ecosystem is, is, is less volatile, I would say. No predators. And... Um, same thing with uh, a bristlecone tree, for example. They grow in areas where nothing else can grow. So what else is different about those organisms that we know of right now and their cellular structure and processes that we just described from us? Uh, well, it's mostly speculation, but what we know is they have very stable genomes and seemingly epigenomes. And so their cells, we don't, I don't think, lose this information as quickly. Now, there's an, um, an animal called the naked mole rat. Um, it's been in the news, so your listeners may know of it. Mm -hmm. It's quite an ugly creature. It lives underground. They have a queen. It's a social animal. And they have not been preyed upon for probably millions of years. And they've evolved very long rodent lifespans. Uh, I think it's 30 years they can live. Now, though the epigenome of those organisms, of those naked mole rats, has been shown to be very stable. And that fits with the hypothesis that of mine, the information theory of aging, that the long-lived animals are those that preserve not just genetic but also epigenetic information for much longer, even in the, in the face of DNA damage, which can disrupt it. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about communication and information in biology, what we know of it. 
you got into something really interesting, and this was uh, Claude Shannon, who was, I think he was at Bell Laboratories, right? He was um, almost obsessed with the idea of communications, especially radio trans uh, radio communications and degradation of signal, and still getting you know the message from one place to another. This uh, his research really led to exactly what we're doing right now, talking over the internet. First of all, give us an idea of his research and why this may relate to the story we're talking about today. Exactly. So Claude Shannon is a hero of mine. Uh, his paper on the mathematics of communication uh, really gave gave rise to the world we live in right now. And it was in the his greatest paper was just after World War Two, which arose from his realization that a message being sent across the radio um, or through wires, if you lost information, that could really cost lives. And so he set about trying to perfect communication and came up with equations and systems that would ensure that no message would be lost. And we know now, and we used to say, oh, sorry, I didn't get back to you because your email was lost. You can't use that excuse anymore. Every email gets through, right? Unless right. it's actually in your junk mail folder. That's thanks to Claude Shannon. The internet was built on, on his equations. But he also, and uh, when you read this paper, it's just beautiful because there's wonderful diagrams as well. And I've put one of them in the book. And what he's proposing is that to ensure that a signal makes it to the receiver, you should have a backup copy of that information. He called it the observer. Essentially, someone or something that re records the original transmission. And if there is a problem at the other end, that person or that thing can be accessed to be able to restore the, the actual message. And what's great about that is that uh, I think that our bodies have the same repository of information, that there is an observer in our cells that can be accessed if and when we lose the epigenetic signal from our birth and essentially reset our epigenetic information and allow cells to behave and literally be the age that we were when we were in our teenage years. Okay, so and this is this is incredibly important. But take one step back here. So, if we're looking at a radio transmission, well, actually, let's just talk about the internet today. So, this is uh, TCP/IP. This is the communication protocol for the internet. And even if you're listening to this podcast next week, there may have been some degradation in your signal, even going to your cell phone in the car. Um, a packet of information is lost. The signal sent back to send that, resend that packet, so that you don't even miss a beat. You, you have a continuous, you know, streaming flow of this conversation, and you don't even notice it. I, if, I guess the, the way this would work is the the receiver has to recognize something's missing and do it very quickly. When we're talking about genes here, we're we're really talking about almost an original blueprint. Nothing's really changing. There's no new messages being sent, but this, there may be an original blueprint of who we are, um, unscathed by all of the epigenetic changes that happen throughout life. Is that what we're thinking right now? Well, that, that's what's, yes, it's, it's exactly how we're thinking. And we didn't know that there was even the potential for a backup copy of the cell's original status to be young. That, that was beyond anything at least 10 years ago that I could imagine. But there have been some real breakthroughs over the last couple of years in the field uh, the discovery that there's an epigenetic clock that very accurately determines the biological age of an animal. Uh, in fact, Colin, I could take your 
blood today and tell you biologically how old you are and even predict with some accuracy when you're going to die. Let's take a deep dive for that for a moment. How is that done? We, it's called the epigenetic clock. It's also called the DNA methylation clock. Um, and it's also named after Stephen Horvath, my good friend at UCLA, the Horvath clock. And what it is specifically is that there are methyl groups, which is a carbon and three hydrogens, that get added to the letter C on the DNA. And those methyl Cs accumulate in very precise ways as we get older and as mice get older and pretty much every mammal on the planet gets older. And what that tells us is that there is a process that is um, quite accurate and linear and com- conserved between all of us. Is this akin to like rings in a tree at all or is that too far an nope. analogy? These are, that's perfect. We finally found the rings in the tree. And until that actually happened, we, we couldn't say that something was accelerated in aging, or nor could we tell if we were reversing aging. And it was actually quite, quite uh, a crazy thing to say the word reversal of aging until we could actually prove it. And now that we have these clocks in mice and in humans, uh, increasingly we're able to understand how aging is accelerated. And we think those chromosomal breaks are a major part of that problem. We can accelerate aging in a mouse by breaking its chromosomes, and we see every aspect of aging gets accelerated. But now we can also test gene therapies, and in the future, uh, molecules, perhaps pills one day, that are able to actually reset that epigenetic clock. And what actually is happening in the cell is that the cells are now re-spooling those DNA loops back to way, where they were and how they were when we were young. So I, th- I believe you've done this on yourself. What is, what is your age? By one of these tests. I haven't done that test. Okay. Uh, it's, it's novel and uh, I will do it. My test that's uh, been publicized was a, a simple blood test that's uh, run by a company here in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. And in full disclosure, I, I am a very small time investor in that company and I advise them. So there's, there's that disclosure. But uh, they, they've looked at about 10,000 or more uh, blood samples and they are able to correlate changes in the blood. Most so these are biomarkers then that blood they're using? Okay. Yeah, standard blood tests. I mean, extensive standard blood tests, about 35 different markers. And the top five of those, uh, for example, liver function, inflammation, uh, CRP. Uh, what else is in there? I said glucose. Uh, glucose is in there, testosterone for men. Anyway, using an, uh, an AI algorithm, they are able to give an estimate, and it's not proof of your biological age. This new clock is even better. And I'm looking forward to actually the combination of these two that'll really give uh, people a a proper dashboard on their bodies. Um, Speaking of dashboards, um, I write in the book uh, that we know way more about our cars than we know about our bodies on a daily basis. And there's a whole section on how that's changing very rapidly. Yeah, that was fascinating. Um, I mean, we're all familiar with the the Apple watches and, and, um, you know, basic markers like your heart rate and Maybe how you slept last night, that one's debatable, but there's so much more. I mean, you could have a urine analysis done on your toilet every day. And those results could be analyzed. Um, but I, I want to talk about that. Before we jump into that, though, just understand this DNA methylation clock. Would it presumably tell you're a 30-year-old tree by 30 rings or you're a healthier tree so you're well, on the surface, you're basically like a 15-year-old tree. You're healthier. Does that make sense, my question? I mean, it, what, what is it, it actually it, showing? 
You're right. Um, so it, it doesn't measure years. So the, the rings are not a perfect analogy because the rings are more like birthday candles. It's, it's actually better than that. It tells you how fast you're aging and how soon you'll succumb to likely succumb to diseases. Uh, it's your aging process actually digitally arranged on the DNA. And so it's exactly right that, that it, it really doesn't care what age you are. It independently can tell you how far you're, you've advanced on this, in this epigenetic aging process, which that we think, I think, underlies most major diseases. So it's, it's not the mileage of the car, it's how it's driven, I guess. Right, right. And I, I often come back to cancer. I think a lot about cancer because it's in my family. If you get sunburn when you're a kid, and I did a lot as an Australian growing up in Sydney, we don't get cancer the next day after we're sunburned. It takes many years. And part of that is thought to be the accumulation of additional mutations. But also what's clearly going on is that you also need epigenetic changes. You need aging to occur alongside of that, changing the metabolism of these cells, making them more Warburg-like, glycolytic metabolism. And that also drives cells uh, to become tumorigenic. And that is often neglected in the cancer field. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, I think that was another argument for um, not having the, um, I'm saying this right, the the gene B, the silencer working all the time, you know, because that that could lead to um, out of control cellular mitosis and cancer, right? That was kind of an early check on that, that we evolved with. Yeah, the survival circuit protects us against mutations, and it's always working to do that. And we had a paper in Science, uh, when was it? I think it was 2013. Uh, don't quote me on that. But we've, we found that raising NAD levels in, in mouse, in mice, and in the liver could actually increase the DNA repair capacity. Uh, and a lot of the DNA repair that wasn't being completed in the old mice went away. So this, you're right that, that by boosting NAD, increasing sirtuins, by dieting, staying a bit hungry during the day and exercising, you're actually increasing your body's ability not just to repair DNA, but cope with the epigenetic changes that result from that. Okay. So back to um, Claude Shannon and the idea of information in biology. If we're looking at these original blueprints we were discussing earlier. Maybe, maybe this would be closer to source code for a software, right? You know, it's not what we see on the surface, but it, you go back to the original code and you can see exactly how they designed it. You can see all the bugs, everything. You know, it's almost like a record of the process that took place to design that software in a way. That's, that's more similar to the analog epigenetic information. Am I on the right track? When you, when you look at the genome, you mean, or the epigenome? The epigenome. Yeah, so the epigenome is, is a record of past events. It's a record of how you've lived your life, what toxins and mutagens you've been exposed to. Um, but okay, so that's an, that would be, and I'm sorry for everybody to keep going to computers, that would be like an event log in your computer, things that have happened. What we're very interested in here, because this is something that could tell you what you were when you were 18, when you, when yeah. you were when you were 25, right? Well, exactly. But also, there has to be a reset button. Like you say, you have to be able to tell the computer to reboot. And we've only just figured out uh, how to do that, to tell the cell, go access the backup copy 
go back to the source code and erase all of the bad stuff that's happened since you were young. And what that backup looks like, we're not sure. We have some idea. Uh, but also what's interesting is our bodies don't access that information. Some species do. Jellyfish can be immortal. We can clone animals. Some organisms re regrow limbs. I would bet that it's the same process. But uh, what's great about it is that it looks like we've retained the ability to regenerate and become youthful if we just tell the cell to do so. Yeah, it's obviously happening and it's it's there. I mean, it seems to be clear. It, there was some research done pretty recently on mice and the um, regeneration of optic nerve pathways that were severed during the, you know, the research. Give us an idea of what that what they found there and how that relates to this. Sure. Well, I, I want to first give credit to a colleague of mine at the Salk Institute. Juan Carlos Belmonte uh, showed that if you turn on a set of four genes, that you can uh, delay aging in a short-lived mouse. But it was, it was a remarkable discovery, and he may win a prize for that. Now, what we did was we took a little different approach. We said, let's work with normal mice. Let's figure out a way to deliver it to them when they're old, not just genetically modify the mice. But more importantly, let's do it in a way that doesn't hurt the mice. And in Juan Carlos Belmonte's paper in Cell in 2016, the unfortunate side effect of his gene therapy was that if he didn't switch it off after two days, the mice died. So that's, that's not going to really be a therapy anytime soon, I don't mm -hmm. think. But um, in proof of principle, it was pretty remarkable. What we did was we took uh, three of the genes. Now, these genes are called Yamanaka factors, and they were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2012, um, specifically to Yamanaka himself, Shinya Yamanaka from Japan, for discovering that these genes can reverse the the, the age of, stem, of, uh, of body cells, of somatic cells, back to being stem cells. This is used all the time. This is not surprising. Most high school students could do it if they wanted. Take a skin cell, reprogram it to be a, a stem cell, and just grow it out to be whatever you want by feeding it different factors. That's been around for you know, the last uh, decade or more. What we did was we took not all of the Yamanaka factors because we don't want to turn our, our retinas or our livers into the world's biggest pile of stem cells. That would, right. that would be a real problem. That would be a teratoma typically. But what we wanted to do was to partially reprogram the cells, not to be a stem cell, but to, to be youthful again. And so we used a combination of Yamanaka factors, um, the three genes, short for O, S, and K, put them in a, an adenovirus, which is used currently for gene therapy in humans, and put it into the eye of mice. And uh, we, we collaborated because we're not experts on the eye. And so the first experiment was to damage the optic nerve of mice, young and old. And we found that by turning on the reprogramming factors, uh, and this is in Jigan He's lab over at Children's Hospital, he found that he could regrow the optic nerve. Um, and after 16 weeks, actually, it, a lot of the nerves grew all the way back to the brain from the, the back of the eye, which in itself was remarkable. Um, but what then we went on to show with Bruce Cassandra's lab um, at Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary is that you can also treat mice that were given glaucoma. Uh, I think everybody would know that's uh, retinal damage from pressure. Right. Uh, and then even more remarkable, we, we treated old mice and their vision was restored back to completely a youthful mouse. And then we showed that those nerves that were treated, they literally were young again. 
I mean, this is mind-boggling. I mean, it's – well, give us a sense of how long it takes to do research like this because it, it's – especially for me as an outsider, this looks enormously complex. You know, so many different variables, but also so many other changes you can make in the body besides that one target that you're looking at. Um, what what do you think took place there and why weren't these um, factors – you know, how were they so concentrated just on optical nerve repair and not going somewhere else or changing other functions in the body? Yeah, that there's your Nobel Prize right there if you can figure that out. <laughs> uh, we don't know yet. Uh, we're looking hard, of course, because that's the big question. What is the backup drive and how does it know how to access that? At the DNA level, these methyl groups, these chemicals, there are many of them that either have subtracted or added as we get older. But somehow the cell knows how to go back to the original blueprint, but not not further than that. And we don't know what's directing that. We know that there are enzymes called TETs, uh, which are the enzymes that remove the methyls. We know that because if we take the TETs out of the eye or knock them down, as we say, uh, we don't get restoration of vision and we don't get the reversal of aging. But hmm. but so we know a little bit of the machinery behind the clock. Uh, but we don't know exactly how it all works. And that's, I think, for me, the most exciting question is to understand in a three and a four dimensional way what's actually going on, going on behind that clock. Yeah, because I mean, I'm sure our listeners can imagine this as a potential one day for spinal cord injury repair, which is a frontier of medicine. We, we really don't know what to do about that. Have no idea. Not to mention a host of other possibilities here. I mean, that, that's just amazing. One, I'll make a point here. You did a really good job accrediting researchers and, and other colleagues in your field. I mean, and it really demonstrates, you know, one, the kind of person you are, but also just how many other people there are working on so many different things. This is, uh, this is still a, a, you know, relatively new field, um, wasn't focused on. Give us an idea of where we are right now. Let's just take a, take a moment to, you know, look at your center, how many people are working there at Harvard and the state of funding with research of this right now? Uh, right. Well, at Harvard, you know, a lot, not everyone's bought into the idea of working on aging, but it's increasingly acceptable. When I first started out over at MIT, it was considered a, a career-ending move, and even people in Lenny Garenti's lab, my mentor's lab, thought that I was nuts for being the first post postdoc to bet his career on this huh. topic. Uh, but you know, I, I say that because it, it really was crazy to think that you could understand aging and think that there was a universal principle and genes that you could manipulate to extend lifespan. Now we're in a very different world. Uh, there's There was a band of brothers, band of sisters that, we, you know, for the last 20 years, about a dozen of us have been putting out papers in the world's leading journals. But it's mostly been quiet. Occasionally, one of the papers gets into the newspapers, but it was usually exaggerated. Um, you know, we're all going to live to 150, blah, blah, blah. And, but finally, the field is being accepted uh, in the mainstream um, in terms of our colleagues. There's a lot of young people joining the field. My lab has about 30 people in it, sometimes 40, depending on the week. And uh, I have another lab in Australia with another 10 brilliant uh, PhD students and, and postdocs. But it's it's relatively small. And uh, it it has remained small because you can only grow as a field if there's money. And the federal government in the U.S. spends a fraction of 1% on understanding the biology of aging. We have a National Institute on Aging, which spends the majority of its money on Alzheimer's disease. 
Now, I, I have nothing against that kind of research. And I'd never say that we shouldn't continue research. Uh, but it's deceptive to say that that huge amount of money in that institute is spent on understanding why we age. Um, there's a fellow, a uh, very talented scientist, uh, he's in his 90s now, Leonard Hayflick, who discovered the Hayflick limit, which is the number of divisions a cell can undergo in the dish. Right. Might cause aging, yep. So uh, he's hilarious. So Len Hayflick uh, likes to joke. Um, actually, he's, he's actually serious, but um, I take it as a joke that he says the National Institute uh, on Aging should be called the National Institute on Alzheimer's Disease. <laughs> and he also said that uh, he's not against Alzheimer's disease research, same as me, but he and I think rightly points out that curing Alzheimer's disease, if we could, wouldn't extend lifespan by more than a week or so. Um, whereas if we could really understand what's driving all of these diseases, including Alzheimer's disease, we would have a far bigger impact. And considering, and as I put in the book, considering how expensive uh, or how much money the US population spends on one jet fighter or on coffee per year in the hundreds of billions, this could be money really well spent. Yeah, we're, we'll come back to this at the end. We're, we're getting um, in the 20 minute zone here, but I do want to end talking about some of the barriers and challenges to your research and what can be done. And this is a big part of it. Yeah, I guess every disease has its lobby, right? And it's it's group fighting for it. And the bigger the disease, the sometimes the bigger the lobby. I, I read recently, um, it was a breakdown of the amount of research spending per death for different diseases. And AIDS was one of the top. Um, it was somewhere like around 260,000 per AIDS death, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's one, it's wonderful that so much funding went to that. It's it's one of the most devastating diseases in, in history, but it's not the only one, and it's not the only thing that ails us. So some groups are better at mobilizing resources than others. So do you think there's a, well, we should all be part of this constituency. We should all be part of this lobby because this ultimately is going to affect all of us if something else doesn't get us first. When you're doing what you do now, you're, you're more of a public figure now, too. You're meeting with government officials, uh, I, I assume donors. Uh, I've got to imagine some of these, these Silicon Valley billionaires are showing some interest in this, and they have some money they can throw into it. Where, where's, the, uh, where's the fire right now? Where's the interest coming from that you see? It's, it's, it would surprise you how few people... Uh, donate to research. Uh, I still spend most of my time writing grants to keep the research going. No kidding. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, what's going on. Hopefully the book will convince people that this is more important than they would otherwise think and more, and more uh, realistic than, than they might otherwise think. Um, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not in with the Silicon Valley crowd. Um, I'm not sure what it is why they're not uh, that interested. It could be location. I'm on the other side. And as you know, there's an east-west uh, bias. There is that. That's true. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm excited by anyone who's interested in aging research. They don't have to support my lab. They could uh, donate to any of my colleagues. But I think as a field, we would greatly benefit because there's so many young people who want to work on this topic who don't have a chance because they, there's just not enough money to support them. I have probably 10 people a day asking if they could join my group and I can say yes to maybe three per year. Wow. Well, I, I want to end on this discussion. So we'll, we'll come back to that in just a few minutes here. One thing you, you spend a lot of time towards the end of the book talking about the bioethics of this and in, in addressing some of the concerns people have. And there really is still a surprising lack of interest in living longer among most people. Maybe they just don't think about it or maybe they look at 
aging as a negative and no one wants to end up in a nursing home at the end, you know, with dementia and not knowing what's going on, like my grandmother did, you know, a year ago. But you have a different view of this, especially in light of your research. Let's, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have time to go through all that, but I'd really encourage people to read your book because I think you do take, you know, a real thoughtful analysis of these these areas. And, and I'll just say my bias here. I, I'm an optimist like you are. You've got me sold. I, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm not a curmudgeon about this at all, but there are some things to be concerned about. And I was thinking about one of our recent guests on Pure Spectrum last year. Uh, his name's David Nichols. He's a neuropharmacologist, and he was one of the few researchers over the last 30 years to have approval from the DEA to produce um, analogs of psychedelics. So he made analogs of psilocybin and other naturally occurring psychedelics for research. And now a lot of his analogs and um, his efforts at funding are being used at Johns Hopkins for real, you know, exciting, promising research that's coming up. But in the process of his research, unfortunately, he was a good researcher. He published his results, but some of those those results are read by others who use them for what are called designer drugs and illicit um, recreational drugs. And it's been a real problem. He's he talked about it in our podcast some of his regrets from that, um, and you know some of the consequences. Let's look at some of the consequences as you see them here. You know, when we're ta- you know, we're talking about really powerful effects on fundamental biology here, and some of these these pathways that you and other researchers are looking at could be used in the wrong hands. Give us an idea. You know, what does keep you up at night, and what you see right now, or as possible risks. Right. Uh, so that's important. Uh, I'm not. I don't look at the world only through rose-colored glasses. I'm trying to model this, trying to see where the future is going. And it's very important. I'm advising world leaders in this. Um, So not all of it is going to be good. Um, A lot of it is not as bad as you might think, including population growth and resources. There'll be a lot of money available if we don't spend 17% of our GDP on healthcare in this country. But what are the bad things? Well, so as I point out in the point out in the book, uh, one area is that we will have uh, more participants who are elderly in voting or public cons- com, uh, conversations. So politics could swing, probably would swing more to the right than it is now. That's one thing. Uh, politicians are continuing to stay in office into their 80s. It could go into their 90s, maybe one day beyond that. And if you have a politician who you really don't like, it's going to be very hard uh, <laughs> to uh, to replace them. Um, and a dictator, you know, someone who uh, cannot be voted out, Imagine if they live over 100, you know, then that's even worse. So there are these downsides that we have to deal with. But overall, with the, those things, I still think that um, by far the benefits outweigh these risks. Um, similar to all new technologies, we can all imagine computers killing us with uh, when they take over and become conscious. But that doesn't mean we're going to stop developing computers and developing AI because ultimately I think that they're going to benefit the world. Yeah, I agree with you. And even if we stop at the United States, it doesn't mean it's going to stop elsewhere. Someone's going to do this. Right. But it's important to talk about it, which is why discussions like this are necessary. Well, like I said, I think you did a pretty good job there. I encourage everybody to read through that. It's um, just beyond the time we have today. Let's, uh, let's look at another question here. I know you get this all the time, so I promise I'm not going to ask you, but you know, people ask you all the time about which supplements you're taking, you know, what, you know, what your day looks like, what you're doing. 
Yeah, I think you, you were even on Joe Rogan, and he started making a shopping list, you know, talking to you. But <laughs> um, and, and if anyone's curious about this, they can go to, let's say, page 304 of your book for the answer. It's right there. And I say that with confidence because I know our medical audience is not just going to run and rip that page off and take it to GNC. They're going to be more thoughtful about that. But, you know, when we're looking at where research is right now, and the distance between that and eventual FDA approval, even clinical human studies, there's a, there's a big gap there. And for many people out there, especially those who are older, who are dealing with pathologies, treatments right now, there's an enormous temptation for self-experimentation. And some things like uh, NMN, vitamin D, resveratrol, these are widely available over the counter. Uh, medications for, such as metformin are not, but you know they can be given off-label, just not for indications that are discussed in your book. Give me a sense of how you look at self-experimentation, for one. And people are going to do this, regardless of whether they're told to or not. And mm -hmm. is there something we can learn from this? So if people are out there doing different things, is there, are there tools for a meta-analysis, looking at anything from social media data to medical records to getting volunteers you know, this is already done uh, to with survey data to see who's using illegal drugs. We can't really do studies on people using cocaine or heroin, but we want to know who's doing it and what the effects are. So we, we do survey, you know, type research that way. What do you think about that, you know, first self-experimentation and is it an area we should ignore or are there maybe signals in the noise that we could learn from this? Right. Well, so my... my in my career, I have not ignored it because, as you say, people are going to do it anyway. When we publish a paper, they're going to read it. They're going to interpret it. They're going to buy things. And there are people selling supplements. Now, to be clear, if you see my face on the Internet selling a product, it's a scam. I don't sell products. I don't endorse any products. So uh, I want to make that clear. I'm just uh, sure. being 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 exploited and I can't shut them down fast enough. Really? So um, that's been a, so, that much of a problem, huh? Well, you know, I've been spending a lot of my salary on lawyers who are sending out cease and desists, and it's a lot of money. And, you know, I don't have the time or the money to be up doing this constantly. And I, they pop up as fast as I can uh, oh, I didn't stop know it. That. So wow. Right. But then people lump me in with that. And so I've got some critics here at Harvard Medical School who think I'm selling supplements, which is the opposite of what I believe in. Uh, anyway, so that with that, uh, I still think that people are going to experiment. They've always done that in, in human history. But what I have as my role is to educate people. Um, I'm on social media. I have a newsletter. I send out new studies that people can research. In my book, you've uh, probably seen, Colin, it's very well referenced. People can look up the data that I'm it giving is. them. I agree. And make their own decisions and discuss it with their own doctor if they're a member of the public. Um, but I never in endorse and I don't recommend any products at all. I've got to tell you, I'm, I get probably 50 emails every day just when I wake up. I pick up my phone, I'm in bed, and it's I can't even find the real important emails anymore. <laughs> so that's that's an issue. But what I, I, I try my best to is to reply to people. And though I never recommend a product, I don't I don't mention products, uh, I try to say what if they're going to do it, what they should do, whether it's consult their doctor, if it's a drug or check that it's from a reputable, reputable supplier and good manufacturing practices, GMP quality. These are things that I would do myself. 
And uh, I think if people are going to do it anyway, they should be at least educated um, the best that I can do. Yeah. And do you think there's anything that could be learned from people who do decide to do this? Is there a way to communicate with them, somehow watch what they're up to, get them as volunteers? What you- mm. it's, it's been difficult. Uh, most of what I focus on, uh, and I think you, you'd appreciate, is are clinical trials where it's all placebo-controlled and blinded, and there you can trust the data. But your question is a good one. Is it possible to crowdsource information? Um, I found it really difficult. I, every day people are telling me this or that has happened and this has been cured or that has gone wrong. And, you know, there might be trends. There are some things that pop up on occasion, but it's never very clear. And I haven't been able to act on any of those anecdotes. Um, but I have my own anecdotes that that I talk about, but I have to be clear when I do that this is not a clinical trial and it's not proof of anything. Now, I don't know of webs. I know there's patients like me, um, mm-hmm. maybe some one of your listeners will know and be able to put out on social media what where people can go to discuss and report what they're noticing. But I I will admit I I stay away from those sites. Yeah, many of the doctors who listen to us are not okay. going to be supportive of this at all. I mean, they you know, and and, and for right, rightfully so. I just I just wondering as a thought experiment if there's anything useful that could be learned from it since people are going to be doing yeah. it anyway. But um, not really. I I really am but, pretty busy trying to. Uh, keep the research going. And I've started a number of companies that are doing clinical trials. So I think people would be happy to know that I'm focusing on that more than the other stuff. Sure, sure. All right. In the few minutes we have left here, um, this is a quote from your book from uh, physicist Max Planck. And he said, quote, a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up what is familiar to them then, unquote. So if presumably people are living longer, some of the very people that uh, will benefit from this, you know, are the people right now who may be putting up barriers to this. They're uncomfortable with the idea of playing God or messing with nature as they see it. And um, it's it's kind of ironic, but that, you know, there are a number of barriers to this right now. We, we've already discussed funding a little bit, but give us an idea of where the friction is for you right now. Not just with funding, but but you know legislation mm-hmm. with communication to the public. Um, what is slowing this down? Oh, well, it's getting the word out. That's why I wrote the book, and uh, thank goodness it's doing really well because that was my goal was to wake people up from the stupor that I think they're in. That aging is something that's inevitable and acceptable and natural, and tell people how exciting the science is and how fast it's moving. Um, and I want to stimulate conversation and have people think differently about the arc of their lives and and what what it means to be a doctor. Um, the other obstacle, really, it's the regulation. It's not having aging as a treatable condition means that it's it's rare that a physician will prescribe a medicine to delay aging. Now, very briefly, metformin is suspected to be preventative of some aspects of aging. The diabetes drug seems to pre- prevent other diseases based on prospective studies. Now, it's not proven, but it's also a very safe drug. So that's also an area that the legislation, the FDA rules, means that scientists, investors, um, and physicians are hesitant to get into uh, longevity and what is sometimes called anti-aging. Yeah, not to mention they may not be able to be reimbursed for their treatment of the patients for it. 100%, yep. Yeah, and that's in the U.S., but um, this is, you know, not unknown to other areas of the world. 
So give us an idea, what are you spending most of your time on right now? Because you have, you know, I'm taking you out of your lab for an hour here to do this, and you've been doing a, you know, a ton of interviews. You've been all over the place. You spent a lot of time writing this, this wonderful book. How do you value your time right now? What, what's most important for you right now? And what are your goals over the next five years to 10 years? Um, well, career-wise, um, I'll continue educating uh, and advising uh, senators and other aspects of uh, world leadership. Uh, my lab is very well run by a great group of managers and grant writers and hums along, but I'll continue to spend most of my time focused making these discoveries and getting them published. We have three big papers in the works at Nature and Cell. Hopefully uh, they'll be in sometime in the next year. I want to get those out to everybody. Uh, but uh, personally, you know, I, I'm probably one of the busiest people you'll ever meet. I, As soon as I wake up, I'm working in bed and I don't go to sleep till about midnight or one. Um, I very rarely get to do uh, exercise, and my special time is with my son on the weekends working out in the gym, and that's what I really look forward to. I imagine. Well, Dave, we're at the end of the hour here, so I know you got to get back, but um, I'm so grateful for you for the time sharing your, your wisdom with us today. I mean, this is, we just barely scratched the surface, really. I mean, I, I cannot recommend more to people to go out and get this book. It's called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have to. Obviously available Amazon, bookstores everywhere. David Sinclair, Really, thank you again for uh, carving out some time with us. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, Colin, thanks for having me on. It's been great. 